Kia ora. welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with News Hub reporter Michael Mora. As a reporter for News Hub, Michael's excellent work has won him a number of awards, including Reporter of the Year multiple times at the New Zealand Television Awards. This is a heavily guarded UN camp for 21,000 displaced by war. It's where Michael Cott and his family have been living since inter-tribal violence erupted in December 2013. He tells me it was a day that we cannot forget. I was sitting in my house and was surprised as someone started shooting. Michael's portfolio of work both nationally and internationally is extensive. He has broken a number of stories that have led the news cycle and led to real change. But it's his visits to South Sudan to report on the situation there that has had the biggest impact on him. In this episode of Recovering, Michael and I explore his coverage of a country in the midst of conflict. During the times Michael has visited South Sudan, it has been extremely volatile, though the conflict has had little global attention. Every single person we come across has a story of loss. They've either lost family members, they've lost homes, or they've lost their businesses. Michael's work helped to put it on the radar for New Zealanders. But as with any reporting in the midst of conflict, it came with a personal toll. Well, Michael, welcome to our little studio in Penrose in Auckland. It's a pleasure to have you in here. You're now sitting in a chair that a whole bunch of uh, people that I admire in journalism have sat in. It's really great to have you there. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Frank. Thanks so much for having us. Now, I would love to start where I start with most people, how you got into journalism, because it seems to vary. You've got people for whom they always dreamed of it. You've got people who started studying something else and they kind of ended up diverting. You've had people who had some sort of epiphany. How did it work for you? Well, I was at Canterbury University finishing my Bachelor of Arts. I was doing history and media literacy, and I didn't really know what... I was going to do? Was I going to be a historian? How was I going to utilize this degree? But at the same time, I was working on the student radio station, RDU, playing music, hosting a little show. I also read the weather news. So I was volunteering there. And a friend of mine said that, hey, look, I'm going to apply for the journalism school. You should do the same. You like radio. You're good at it. You should do that. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll give that a nudge. And so I then said about um, trying to write articles for the student paper, for the press if I could, on a pro bono basis to just to get my work out there. I volunteered and got a job at Canterbury Television, and all this work was to try and impress Jim Tully, who was the head of the journalism school, because it was only a small number of people who got in each year. That course was largely print-based with elements of radio and television, and I did get in, and I haven't really looked back. I never, ever envisaged that I'd be working in television. I worked at the Northern Advocate for a short time, but my first proper job was actually at Radio Northland, where I worked for News Talk ZB as the Northland reporter. And uh, that's how it all started. So what grabbed you that made you go, this is what I want to be doing? I think it was the 
ability to be in that privileged position where you can hold the powerful to account, where you can get results for your work, where you can inform and educate the public, both in New Zealand and overseas. And I found it exciting. When I first started, I was running around with a little tape recorder and a microphone, and I had no idea really what I was doing. I was really thrown in there. Yeah. I remember covering Waitangi Day for the network, and I was pretty much fresh out of journalism school, and I was very nervous. But I managed to pull it off, and as it happened, there was a lot of big stories in Northland where I started as a reporter. I was really busy. Um, I was really at home, and I was always at the office. I started reading some of the local news bulletins at ZB. I just loved it. And uh, then I moved down to Wellington. After six months in a reporting role for ZB in Wellington, I had a meeting with the late news legend Gordon McBride, who was the Wellington bureau chief for Three News at the time. And that's how my television career started. This is something I've noticed more and more in these interviews, and it's something I want to press into as recovering continues, is just those influences and those mentors. What influence did he have? Oh, Gordon was hugely influential in my career. He was a no-nonsense, hard-news bureau chief. If you made a mistake with a script, if your script wasn't up to scratch... He would yell at you, you would be in his office, he would tell you exactly what was wrong, why this is crap, how it needs to be fixed. And he didn't take any bullshit. He was a straight-up newsman, and he expected the best. And everyone respected him. He taught me so much from those early stages in my career, and... I know that everyone who worked with him would think the same, albeit sometimes perhaps found him a little bit scary. I certainly did when I first started. <laughs> but he's a he's a lovely man. He had a great sense of humour, and he was respected by so many at TV3. And I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to start my career with Gordon McBride. Mm, what do I appreciate about what you've just said? Because if someone just flipped out and they were just angry all the time, if something didn't meet their standard, that would that'd be frustrating. And I could imagine that crushing a lot of people. But in there you said he would point out what was wrong, he would point out what was needed and how to fix it and what he wanted, which means that it's not just anger, it's offering you the pathway to improve your work. Yeah, that's exactly right. It wasn't like he just blew up at reporters for no reason and then didn't offer any solution. He wanted Three News and his reporting team to be the best, to cover the stories better than anyone else, to script better than anyone else. And he taught me a lot about television and writing to pictures and how to craft a story. And, you know, that's something... I'll never forget, he was always constructive in his feedback, albeit sometimes delivered in a relatively <laughs> angry way. But yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that, that was critical to my learnings when I first started television journalism mm. about 18 years ago now. Who else has played a, a part in your journey then? I oh, definitely, I've always looked up to my friend and mentor, Mike McRoberts. I've just always been in awe at his 
storytelling and coverage of stories in particular. And remember when I was a young reporter watching some of his reporting from various war-torn parts of the world and the way he wrote and the description and his tone, the way he delivers the news as well had an impact on me. I found him relatable. I found his storytelling to be super engaging and we've become good friends. I still look up to him as a news legend. He's taught me a hell of a lot and he continues to give me advice and mentor me even now after 18 years in television. Mm. You mentioned that early in the career you're, you're pulling long hours and often that's needed when you're starting out but now you're married, you've got children. I'd imagine you want to be in it for a while to come as well which means needing some balance. So what do those hours look like these days? Well, I have a bit of a confession that I'm a bit of a work addict. I didn't get home until 9pm last night On Sunday, I was on a day off. I ended up being in the office from 4pm until 10pm at night to secure an interview for a really important story. The job does, at times, demand extra work and long hours, but one of the things I've tried to improve is a better work-life balance, and that's been one of the problems I've had for a wee while, is trying to have that equilibrium of realizing that work is work and that's over here but you know I've got family and my loved ones and a whole life going on over here as well so I think I've got much better at managing that Uh, I think also as I've developed as a journalist I have got a bit more autonomy and I don't worry about things so much for example being at the news meeting every morning at 9am in person. It means I can drop the children off at school, I can make my way into work, I'm not stressed about being there in person, I can log on on my phone and listen and contribute. And so that's nice and I do yeah, try to have a better equilibrium with my life and I think I'm succeeding at that. Most of the time. (laughs) That's good. You've won a number of awards now. I think about the television awards. There's the Voyager Media Awards. You've taken away some things that I think probably are good to validate your sense of being good at what you do. Do those awards play any part in that? Yeah, I mean, one one thing I've always thought is that if you're going to be good as a journalist, you can't be lazy. It does require hard work. It does require taking calls from contacts late at night or at the weekend, sometimes at the most inconvenient of times. But when that call comes through or that message comes through and one of your contacts needs to talk to you, you do have to take the call. If you don't, they may talk to someone else or you may lose that relationship. And that's what it's all about is having these trusted relationships I do think that the persistence and effort and passion for the job is ultimately what's led me to generate some good journalism and take out some big awards. So I yeah, I've, I always, you know, say to my colleagues, you know, some who have just started, you've got to put in the hours, you've got to work hard, and that's just the way it is. It's, there's a lot of stories out there. You've got to keep digging. 
yeah. keep working. Yeah. There's one way that you, I'll use the word detox. There's one way that you detox that I read in, a, in an interview with you that took my fancy, spearfishing. Tell me about spearfishing and why spearfishing. So I'm a bit of an obsessive newsman and I'm an obsessive fisherman. <laughs> it is my outlet, a cathartic sort of experience to be out on the boat totally quiet underwater and swimming around it's another world and I find it gives me a renewed sense of energy and drive and there is nothing I like more than going out getting a couple of fish for the farno, coming back filleting it and cooking it up I'm always like proud as punch and <laughs> talking to the kids. Hey, do you, did you like that snapper? Or hey, have you tried this kingfish? Yeah. Um, it's a bit pathetic, really. But it is my um, outlet. It is what I love doing. I'm passionate about the Hodaki Gulf in general and about the, you know, beautiful water that surrounds Auckland City. Mm. One of the reasons I brought it up is because there's a number of things about spearfishing that whilst I'm not a spear fisherman, there's some things that I can relate to, but there's some really healthy things I see in there as well. The fact that you have to, surely you have to be in the moment, because it's actually reasonably dangerous. You're under the water. I would imagine it pulls you into the moment and you have to put the work stuff aside. Absolutely. And you can only get that successful shot if you are just focused on the spearfishing, just focused on being underwater and calm and relaxed. That's one of the most important things is to be calm. You can hold your breath for longer if you're relaxed and that's a key thing because, of course, spearfishing, I don't have a tank. It's snorkel and mask. I like it as well because it's a very selective way of fishing you are not ever going to catch a small one when you're spearfishing because you are there with the fish and you have a small opportunity, a small window when you see a fish that is big enough and you take the shot. Sometimes you have one shot, you might miss, and then it's all over for the day and you, you don't take home that prized kingfish. I hear a strongly meditative element there because it's about your immediate surrounding as opposed to your journalist world, which is the whole world. There's a, any number of stories you could be picking up on, whereas spearfishing pulls that right in. Yeah, it does. And, you know, you just are purely focused on that. And I think part of the reason I find it such a meditative sort of experience is because you are in the water and your immediate surroundings are all that matter. You don't hear any of the noises. You can't hear people talking. There's no phones ringing, no text message alerts. And you're just sort of diving into the unknown. And it's a wonderful experience. Mm. The reason I've dwelled here a little bit is because I think for young journalists in particular, it is easy to get lost in the job. Unless you're able to find ways that pull your world in, cause you to be present in a moment where those other things have to be put aside, it can be overwhelming. Absolutely. Um, it is an all-consuming 
job. And like what I was saying before about the um, phone calls or text messages or emails, no one particularly cares too much if it's a Saturday or Sunday. That doesn't matter in some situations. And as a journalist, you're expected to take the call. So I think having a way to separate that work where you're solely focused on one thing and look, it might be running, it might be going to the gym, listening to music, but you have to have an outlet that is separate from news because news is constant, always changing. And so I'm fortunate I found that, not that I've done a lot of it this summer, but I am hoping to get out there on Thursday this week. Yeah, good. <laughs> I hope you managed to get that time then. Let's dive into the story that we're going to talk about, Sudan. Now, I used to work for Tierfund, as, as I mentioned to you earlier. And so my contact with the conflict was before the era that you've spent time over there. But I remember the George Clooney era where Darfur was the big thing in, in the west of Sudan. But... For those who might not be familiar with the situation, give us an overview first before we dive into your part in the story. Yes, so I travelled to South Sudan twice, once in 2016 and again in 2017 when a famine was declared. South Sudan is the world's newest nation, became an independent country in 2011 and it's basically into, sadly, its 11th year of prolonged conflict. What occurred after the elections and South Sudan becoming independent is there were celebrations, there was optimism, there was hope for the people about a new era. What occurred post those celebrations was inter-tribal fighting largely between two tribal groups, the Dinka and Nua people, both of whom were aligned at the time to the president, Salva Kerr, or his deputy, um, Riek Mashar. And the conflict has continued for decades, well, for many years, and what's occurred as a result of this is not only massive amounts of displacement and famine and disease, but tens of thousands of people, women and children, civilians have lost their lives. And it's still going on right now. Now, this is really sad because, as you mentioned, South Sudan is a very new country in the big scheme of things, and there was a lot of hope. I remember that hope. I mean, and for that nation to be formed was a really big deal because leading into that, there'd been a conflict. For those who aren't familiar, the north of Sudan borders Egypt, so you've got a largely Arab population. The president, Omar al-Bashir, has been convicted of genocide, of war crimes, because of what was being done to the people in Darfur and South Sudan, the largely African population. There was essentially an attempt to wipe them out. So there was a common enemy for the South, was the North, and it was al-Bashir. And so then uh, there was a lot of, thanks to the likes of George Clooney, there was a whole lot of Western investment and support of South Sudan being formed. And correct me if this is a wrong assessment of the situation, but once that enemy was no longer 
kind of there because you had your own independent nation, then the conflict just turned internal. That's exactly right. And there are so many small, different tribal factions and rebel groups. And part of the issue is that there is widespread corruption and lawlessness. So you have government officials and South Sudanese army officials who are complicit in alleged crimes against humanity, but where there has been no consequences. And so the lawlessness, the brutality has continued unabated. And caught in the middle is the civilian population. I'll never forget landing in South Sudan. I'd never been to Africa, Mm. but the place felt scary as soon as I got off the plane. The airport where we went through, if you can call it that, was a small canvas tent with a truck on the runway with a huge machine gun and military men standing on top. I mean, at that point, you you know you've stepped into a whole other world. Absolutely. I'd come from Auckland, Aotearoa, into Juba, the capital, South Sudan. Men taller than me with M16s slung across their shoulder in the blistering heat. And, it let's, was, and let's point out that you're not short. <laughs> no, no, I'm 6'5", I'm so it was intimidating. And it just felt edgy. Mm. The the whole trip from the beginning to the end, you were kind of on edge. What does your brain do at this point? Because my understanding is you're there with an aid organization, probably to highlight their work and the good that they're doing there. At this point, you get off the plane, there's a tent, there's guys with big guns, everything feels tense. What does your brain do? Well... My brain as a journalist is looking around and trying to absorb as much as possible, listening out for anything, taking in any interactions, trying not to stare at anyone for too long, because don't forget we're there with a camera. You know, we knew at the time there was, you know, journalists who, you know, had been arrested. I didn't want that to happen to myself or my cameraman. The adrenaline starts pumping, and, um, you know, especially when we got out of the small canvas shack and our bags were kind of dumped on the back of this truck and there were people just sort of grabbing at them and I was wondering what was going on and of course they wanted to assist with taking us to our accommodation. They saw we were foreigners and this was an opportunity, Mm. you know, but this was all kind of pretty wild. Nothing like the Air New Zealand checkout situation in Auckland or Hawke's Bay or wherever you're going to. It was really quite remarkable. I guess it was just, uh, yeah, a little bit unnerving and exciting at the same time, if that makes sense. I was in a war zone. I was there and, um, you know, ready to start reporting. But at the same time, I it suddenly, uh, you know, suddenly came to me what situation I was in. Mm. Um, this is a very hostile, risky environment and we're going to have to be careful. 
And whilst you can go through a whole bunch of different types of prep to get yourself ready for it, and I'd imagine you went through some stuff. I read a lot. Yeah. I watched a lot. I did a great deal of detailed research, but nothing could have prepared you for what you walked into, to be honest. Yeah, nothing, nothing can. I remember being with a group in Palestinian territory, end of 2012. There was conflict going on. The place where we were staying was in the middle of riots, and we had tried to prep the group that we were with for what was going to come possibly, but there's nothing that preps you for once you're on the ground? Absolutely not. And we did have security officials with us. One of the gentlemen was um, ex-New Zealand Defence Force and a lovely guy and very onto it. But again, you know, things happened on both trips I went, both years we went, and it was unplanned and out of the blue and we had to pivot and change what we were doing. South Sudan is so unpredictable you really didn't know, you know, what what could happen. As we discovered, as we we're travelling up the Nile on a boat to go and visit a New Zealand Red Cross nurse, we got off and everyone was told to come for a meeting. It was all sort of quite urgent. And um, the aid boat just behind us that had left about 10 minutes after us had shots fired at their vessel. And that really put things into context because when you were there as a member of the free press with a humanitarian group, you think to yourself, well, I'm not part of the conflict. I'm here to tell the story from both sides. We'll be okay from that perspective. I'm not part of any warring faction. But, of course, it's very dangerous for even aid workers, even journalists in South Sudan, and we quickly found that out. Mm. Just watching you as a chaplain, the chaplain side is kicking in. Your demeanour when you talked about spearfishing was much lighter. Your face was much lighter. There was the, and yet it's come on now. There's the smile. There's the sense of this is my happy place. Your demeanour talking about this is entirely different. So it's clearly had an impact. It's Yeah, it had a huge impact, actually. Um, I think I had never witnessed firsthand the level of devastation and despair and hopelessness anywhere in the world as I did in South Sudan. They have what are called... Um, POCs or Protection of Civilian Camps. Now these are, for our listeners, not a refugee camp as you would imagine. These are displaced people but they are in camps that are protected by UN military men who are armed 24-7 and that is to stop other people from infiltrating those camps to hurt them. There are 34,000 people who are internally displaced in their own country they're in these protection of civilian sites because their homes have been burnt to the ground. They have been run off their land that they used to farm. In many cases, including children, have witnessed their parents being shot or raped and hearing the stories, especially from the children was unimaginable, the horror that they had endured. And I found that 
really hard to process. Some of these children have been born into these protection of civilian sites. Their world and what they have grown up seeing is war and men from the UN with guns. Mm. Their place of play is the muddy troughs about the small canvas or mud shacks they live in, often with 12 other brothers and sisters and their parents. And walking around, you would see the kids and they were playing in the mud and and what were they building? They were crafting guns Mm. out of mud. And that really stuck with me in this place where they have grown up not knowing what life is really like. And when our camera was out, they're pointing guns with their hands like this. Mm. They think it's cool. It's what life's about. And sadly, many of those children do end up joining that war. There's an estimated seven to, I think, 16,000 child soldiers. They're young, energetic, impressionable. They follow orders. They are exploited by adults to fight a hopeless war. And it was really upsetting talking to some of those young kids about what they'd witnessed. Mm. These kids are being formed in war, being formed by war. Their brains are being shaped by war. And for those of us who have grown up in the West, the idea of protection of civilian camps just sounds completely foreign. All that people would do, that people would attack civilians seems foreign. We now imagine war as professional soldiers shooting each other or guided missiles hitting military installations. But this is war as it has been for most of history. Civilian populations being hit. World War II shifted that for how the West operates, but this is the horror of war. It is the horror of war, and there's this myriad of complications. You have the intertribal fighting, the inequality which results from that fighting, the corruption and lack of consequences for the perpetrators of the violence. I think there's about 8.3 million people who require right now in need of humanitarian assistance in South Sudan. I mean, it's unimaginable, really. And we travelled to a town in northern South Sudan, right near the border with Sudan, northern Bar Ghazal. 40-degree heat, land that was no good for really growing anything. And we went to a emergency ration station and this was the first time I got a real glimpse into the desperation of the situation and World Vision were doing incredible work at this site checking babies and delivering food parcels but at the same time the degree of malnutrition and starvation was 
um, immense. Mm. I spoke to a young mother who was there with two of her daughters and she'd walked for hours to get there and she would be taking away this well-being pack and some food but she she said to me because I said well what have you been eating prior to this and she had been eating leaves cooked in oil that's all for her and her children and she then revealed that one of her youngest had got really sick and one night had diarrhea after eating the leaves. And in the morning she was dead, mm. her baby. So she was there with two of her other children who were also severely malnourished. And I'm talking so hungry and lacking in energy, they were just lying on the ground. The kids did not appear as kids. They did not have the energy to stand up and do things that normal children would do. That was really hard then, and it's still hard now, and it was um, particularly hard in the first few months when I got back to New Zealand. Mm. You mentioned before talking to the children in the POC, and you mentioned them pointing their fingers as a gun, as those things being upsetting. And just now, that story being upsetting. How do you keep going? I think what I thought to myself the entire time, and this is what I think to myself with any story I'm doing, is that at the very least, with journalism like this, I'm educating the population in New Zealand about South Sudan. Even if one person understands that, oh, well, South Sudan's in Africa and there's a war going on and this is what the people face, then I think that's a success to educate people in New Zealand about a war and an emergency that over a decade on is still a developing crisis and one which is severely undercovered by mainstream media. And I think that's what kept me going is that by sharing these stories and we did two big campaigns on South Sudan and what was happening there. So dozens of stories, um, not just for News Hub, but in other publications as well, magazines, online platforms, etc. And through all of that, of course, we were trying to raise funds for the work that World Vision was doing and I thought to myself that if I can make a difference through our journalism then it's all worth it. I also feel and I still feel that sometimes when you invest time with a person in an interview it can be helpful to that person to release their story to a stranger, me, and tell me what they're facing, what they have endured, what they need now. And I'm not saying that's always the case, but I'm saying in, in, in some situations, and especially in South Sudan, the people were so appreciative that uh, I was on the ground from 
New Zealand and listening and caring about their plight. Some of them couldn't believe it. Why are you here? They'd ask. I'm just fortunate that my team at News Hub saw that the story was important, even though New Zealand is so far away. Mm. There's a really good point in there about the fact that someone telling their story can be healing because often journalists encounter people who are dealing with trauma and can either be a part of the process of healing that trauma if dealt with well or can do the opposite and contribute to the trauma. So it's nice to hear you recognize the part that you can play in helping the healing, which then makes how you approach an interview really important too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that's the case in every situation. And I think you've got to always be cognizant of what the person has been through and whether it's appropriate at the time. Mm -hmm. And you can generally pick up on that in the field. And you could tell, you know, who was kind of interested and who just really, you know, didn't want to discuss their life. Now, you mentioned coming back in the months afterwards. I'm yet to encounter anybody who's been in a conflict zone who has come back and found it easy reintegrating because it's high adrenaline, it's extremely confronting, and then you get back to normal, everyday, mundane life. What was that like for you? Incredibly difficult. Um, It's a very unique and unusual situation to be in when you touch back down in Auckland and I went back to my flat on the North Shore and my my young family were there and um, I sort of thought how wonderful it is that we've got a, a house. I've got two daughters but we only, I only had my oldest daughter in, at that point so there was just three of us in the house and I thought oh isn't this amazing we've got this house and you know it's dry and um, there's only three of us in this house. I visited homes in the capital Juba, where there was 15 members of a family living in a space that's a quarter of the size of this house we're in at the moment. And uh, I did struggle to adjust. Nothing for a while seemed that important because of what I had experienced. The small little things in life, oh, we've got to paint that fence or this has got to happen, or the kids are not happy about that. All of it seemed unimportant because of what I had experienced. And I I did sort of struggle with that, and it took me a long time to get back into the gear of, this is my life, you need to sort yourself out, Mike, and realise that, yes, there is still ongoing trauma and killing in South Sudan and untold stories, but you've done that bit and you need to park it up. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to get there, and I I actually v- visited my um, general practitioner at the time because I was kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed by it all. How did that exhibit for you? I think I was quite... Stressed, I was finding work and home life all a bit sort of overwhelming. I probably dealt with that period with drinking too much. And I ended up in an unhealthy situation 
where I wasn't really exercising. I was still driven by work and work was still demanding because work goes on, right? Mm. I didn't really deal with it and I didn't really talk about it and I was just feeling overwhelmed with everything about my life. Mm. And I um, visited a general practitioner at the time and he's a really good guy. Not that I'd been to him a lot, but I was sick. He just said, you know, um, well, we can sort that out, but how are you in general? And I, um, and I broke down and I think I hadn't really addressed what I had endured when I'd been overseas. He asked me about my travel, and it wasn't just the South Sudan trip, it was other trips I'd done, and I think it all culminated. I was um, struggling, and uh, that conversation to a person who was not a mate, but actually a stranger, and I just let it all out. Mm. And after that, I felt so much better, and... Then I got on a better path to to park that and compartmentalise it and not have it internally in my head and being part of my life all the time. And I started exercising regularly and I, um, I got back on track. But I did have a period there where I was not in good form. Mm. I mean, everything you've just said is why I do what I do because I think people need to talk Sometimes people need more, but sometimes just talking is a healing thing in and of itself because what you did as you opened up was you externalized it rather than just having it stewing away inside. So I want to commend you that when the GP asked how you're doing, you didn't just do what many Kiwis do and just say, oh, I'm good. Uh, I want to commend you for opening up to your GP. It takes a bit of courage. Yeah, and it's strange because I've, of course, told friends of mine and work colleagues about my experiences. But somehow in this environment, in a closed room with someone who I trusted, yeah, I found it really helpful. And that conversation and ongoing conversations with my wife, who's also a GP, was really helpful. And she was incredibly supportive, as my family have always been right through my career in journalism incredibly supportive, understanding, and I'm incredibly grateful. Mm. So with what you know now, based on all of that experience, if you were talking to you as that plane's taking off to go to Sudan, what advice would you be giving to that person? Well, I think now, because I've done many trips um, to places, mainly natural disasters all over the Pacific, disease outbreaks in the Pacific um, I think I've learned a lot from those earlier initial trips and what I learned from that is you need to talk about what you've seen and witnessed when you return from this and talk about it at length. If you bottle all that up inside you 
and pretend like everything's just normal and you're like, oh, yep, no, I'm back from South Sudan. Okay, let's have the kids to school. Everything's normal. You know, it was even the small things like uh, my, my children had, you know, they had toys. None of the children in South Sudan could imagine having a, a toy. Gosh, if they had a old soccer ball they were kicking around, that was a bonus. The only reprieve from the war really was the child-friendly spaces that World Vision and other agencies had set up where they could kind of laugh and um, learn and dance and just forget about all the terrible things around them. I think that talking about these experiences is key. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I think talking with the colleagues you were with, debriefing more often, that's all critically important. Debriefing with the family, telling family exactly how you're feeling, what your state of mind is, talking to your bosses about that. I think um, we're getting so much better at doing that in New Zealand. Our team at News Hub, especially my boss, they're very cognizant of what trauma people can go through after they return from uh, you know, a, a country where, where war or, um, or even just grief, even um, talking to people and, and they're explaining and in grief. That, that, that is, it's incredibly taxing and it all, like in this situation, it all kind of came up on me all of a sudden and then I felt better. So we have great support at News Hub and methods for talking to people now that we didn't have in previous years. Yeah, it's really good. Hearing everything that you've said, as someone who used to work for Tear Fund, an aid and development agency, and was involved in trying to get people to take notice of issues that they otherwise wouldn't care about, we never had any contact during that my time there, but I know that you went away on a couple of trips for Tear Fund during that time. So I just want to say to you and other journalists who have worked with aid and development organisations, I want to say thank you for helping us to put on the table issues that otherwise New Zealanders just wouldn't notice. Well, look, I just think it's so important and I'm grateful to all those agencies, you know, Tear Fund and World Vision and others, including Red Cross and Oxfam and UNICEF, those teams who have helped us when we're deployed into difficult situations or who can help us to tell that story by taking us somewhere like South Sudan. And I think it's critically important because it's, like I said at the beginning of the interview, it's educating people about a crisis that is otherwise not seen or heard. Mm. The focus is elsewhere. What have we heard about South Sudan recently? Nothing. What we hear about is the latest war in Russia and Ukraine. And so I think you know, taking those opportunities and to show the amazing work. And we met some amazing people, uh, inspirational stuff, you know, Kiwi nurses from Hawke's Bay and Wellington in the middle of nowhere in South Sudan, helping gunshot victims, helping the malnourished and those afflicted with severe disease. And they keep doing that. They might deploy out of South Sudan for a while, but then they will go to the next place. And I admire that ability of people to want to help those who are less fortunate. And I think that is part of our duty as journalists to highlight the plight of the most vulnerable, represent the most vulnerable, and 
share their stories in a world where they otherwise wouldn't have a chance. Mm. Oh, Mike, I think through your career thus far, and it's got many years to go, I would imagine, I think you've done a superb job of it. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Cheers, Frank. Thinking about the future of uh, media in Aotearoa, New Zealand, what do you imagine it looks like? I like have great optimism for the future of news and journalism in New Zealand. We are at a crossroads, absolutely. There's a lot of challenges. There's a shortage of journalists, for one. We're in the midst of possibly heading into a recession. We are facing the constant challenge of the rise of social media and the rise of fake news. But I think ultimately, well, I know there will always be a place for good journalism and truth-telling. And I'm certainly not done with doing that. And I'm immensely proud of all my colleagues at News Hub and the drive and passion and energy that they bring to the newsroom every day to tell those stories and inform the public. And they know that their job is important. We all do. And we'll continue to do that. But of course, there are challenges. So it's about addressing those challenges by adapting, by remaining close and holding those friendships and camaraderie between our units, supporting one another. And now more than ever, I think that's where journalism and newsrooms have come together in New Zealand. I mean, of course, there's still that competition that exists between outlets, but it's nothing like when I first began my career, you know, 18 years ago. We are more of a single unit and support each other, praise each other for great work we've done. And um, I think that'll continue into the future. But I know that we have some incredible reporters in New Zealand, incredible producers and, and news bosses, and everyone's just as passionate about the job as everyone else. And um, it's critical to have a powerful, strong fourth estate to highlight the plight of the most vulnerable, to hold powerful to account, to force changes to policy or change laws if that is required. And uh, it's ultimately a key pillar of a functioning democracy. I have great optimism that we will continue to have a very strong journalism unit in New Zealand, Aotearoa. Brilliant. Mike, thanks for putting so much of yourself on the table. It has been an honour to have this conversation. Yeah, well, likewise, it's been really good to go back in time and um, revisit everything that I've um, endured over the last few years. So great to be here, Frank. Thanks for having me. Nga mihi nui, Michael. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin, and Steph So Lovemau for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would love to hear it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. 
At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media, and we demonstrate that by offering free, independent, and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up, and the coffee's on us. (music) 